the mystery of the incarnation, the mission of the Son. Without divine help, the weight of God's pathos, that was the theme of the first section, is too heavy to carry for a normal human being. As Balthasar phrased it, where man completely fails, the history of the covenant of God becomes a history of God with himself. This history of God with himself reaches its peak in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus from Nazareth. It shows that God's history with himself does not exclude human beings, but much more includes them in a way never seen before. God himself becomes in Christ a human being. As such, he fulfills all the positive possibilities a human being can have. He is the royal human being, der königliche Mensch, as Karl Barth called him. By living a human life, God lays the grounds for the transformability of human existence into God's own life. And he paves the way back for those who went astray. Yes, he takes them back with him. But it's not just God who became man, but more precisely the eternal Son, who was sent by the Father in the unity of the Spirit. It's the Son who took the way abroad. That's also an expression from Barth. But the foreign region he enters is at the same time his own for the Son, for in the Son all things are created. Thomas Aquinas unfolds the mission of the Son in a most impressive web of Trinitarian theology, which is a good starting point for a deeper understanding of the logic of the Incarnation. Because God is three in one, as we heard before, he does not need the world in order to be related to another. The creation and the reconciliation are therefore both an expression of God's gracious Trinitarian love. In God there is an order, the Ordo Processionis, by which the three equal persons are related. In God we can consider three aspects, the essence, the relation and the origin. With respect to all three, the persons are in each, in each other, which presupposes that there is a difference between them. This also means that they are unified in their action, even though they are involved differently in their action. It is the same power by which the Father generates and by which the Son is generated. So the Father and the Son have the same power, but in different respects. The Father has this power as the one who gives ut dans, and the Son has this power as the one who receives ut akipiens. Vespasilius the Great Aquinas emphasizes that the eternal Son and the creatures have the receiving in common. That's a very important point. Of course, he says it's not in a univocal way, but it's, it's a faint similarity, you know, but still, Receiving, he uses the word akipere, that's something which the creatures and the eternal son have in common. For Christology, this is uh, of uh, tremendous importance. That makes them in a specific way compatible, as well as Christ, Christ, other human beings have a mission which constitutes the core of their being. The mission of the son which leads to the incarnation is rooted in the eternal procession from the Father. Yes, it even is eternal procession with an additional temporal terminus ad quem. Since the Father is non ab alio, he cannot be sent and hence he cannot incarnate. Because the temporal mission is a variation of the eternal procession, the Trinitarian persons are not separated by the mission of the Son and the Son does not lose his divine nature in the incarnation. I guess hardcore Thomists are very happy that they, they say they don't separate, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it's relative. Uh, from there follow the two natures of Christ as they were defined in their relationship by the Council of Chalcedon. Christ is one person in two natures, the one divine, the other human. These two natures are unmixed, unaltered, undivided, 
and unseparated. The question is how these two natures relate in the one person of Christ. It has to be noticed that the Council of Chalcedon takes a stance against those who ascribe passibility to the divinity of the monogenes, and this has not to be taken lightly. The notion of the pathos is, a very, is very difficult to understand. If you have ever read uh, Philokalia, the collection of spiritual writings of the East, Eastern Orthodox Church, uh, you will find there the ideal of apatheia, which in the end, as I understand it, means purity of heart. Not to be bothered by vices which uh, torture you. But of course, um, there's also the vice of insensibility in Aquinas. He uh, mentions, and that's not, not meant by apatheia. The divine nature certainly cannot simply be affected by suffering in the way human nature is, but it has to be asked first what Patema Pathos means in the context of the Church Fathers. If Patema Pathos is understood as being occupied by evil which makes us suffer involuntarily because we actually are evil, this status has to be avoided by all means. That's what I just told you. But it does, this does not exclude, and it may not exclude, the range of feelings the prophets ascribe to God in his relationship with Israel. And from here you can see that I take a little bit uh, different stance than um, other people who talked here yesterday and today. I think that the theme of God Suffering is very important. We should not avoid thinking about this. The formula of, of the Calcinense leaves a static impression, but rightly seen, it fosters the ingredients of the movement of the mission of the sun. It sets the frame for the understanding of the relationship between the eternal sun and his divine nature as the terminus aquo on the one side, and Jesus from Nazareth in his human nature as terminus ad quem on the other side. This whole structure, I mean the whole uh, person of Christ, is of course on his way to the Father as the final terminus ad quem. Of particular importance with respect to the terminus ad quo is the unity of the person of the eternal Son with the divine nature. Of course, we have to differentiate between the essentia and the relationes of God, but a divine person is a relatio ut subsistens in divina natura. And hence, actus sunt suppositorum. We have to differentiate between the divine persons and the divine essence, but we can never separate them. Who says the eternal Son automatically also says the divine essence in the way of receiving. Aquinas therefore rightly states that we can say essentia estres generans, when Deus generans si res, est Deus supponant pro persona. So he says the essence can generate if it means God or the Father. Wherever the divine persons act, the divine essentia is also involved because the persons act through the power of the essentia. For this reason, it's not possible to exclude in Christ the divine nature from suffering with the argument that the Son suffered only in his human nature, because with the Son himself as a person, the divine nature inevitably already is involved or else it would not be the eternal Son. To, do that, to deny this from a Thomist point of view would mean to become de facto suddenly, strangely Lutheran. You have to, to look at the footnote in order to understand what I mean. Um, I hope you speak German. <laughs> This leads in the next step to the question of the unity of Christ in his two natures. The two natures of Christ have to remain original 
because the unmixed and the unaltered safeguard the freedom of the eternal Son as God and as man. If Christ cannot act freely as a human being, he has not truly become a human being, and this presupposes an intact human nature. The lack of an intact human nature would put in question the genuine reconciliation of the fallen world. And if Christ cannot act in the divine quality of his divine nature, he would fall back on the level of a mere human being who would not be able to do what Christ did. This would endanger the reconciliation as well. But the aspects of the unseparated and the undivided are as important as the first pair. If there is no analogia entis, the unity of the person of Christ in his two natures would not be possible. It would mean for Christ to constantly have to change roles, yes, even to those tocatically disincarnate from time to time, at least in certain respects, in order to do justice to the difference of his natures. To rule the world in glory, and then again to be thirsty in the desert. Only if Christ himself is the concrete analogia entis, as Balthasar called him, in the is the unity of his person in the two natures preserved. This unity also makes, in unity with the first pair of the Chalcedonense, a dynamic relationship between the two natures of Christ possible. Christ adapts as the eternal Son to his human nature, and at the same time he informs his human nature through his absolute self-enactment, which is connected to the role of the Holy Spirit in Christology that Lecce has well described. This is probably what Maximus Confessor had in mind when he spoke of a certain new theandric energy of Christ. Here we can see how the Calcitonense actually does serve a better understanding of the dynamics of the mission of the Son. Christ's self-enactment appears in this way as a reproduction or reenactment of the gift character of the dynamics of incarnation. The interplay of the two natures implies a consistent communicatio idiomatum. All the positive aspects of the divine nature, which have to do with the loving reception of the divine substance through the Son from the Father, must have a finite equivalent in the human nature and all the aspects in human nature which have to do with the genuine reception of esse by the creature must be able to be taken up by the self-enactment of the eternal Son. Both ways, from the divine to the human nature and in reverse, are connected through the gift character of freedom which originates in the end in the eternal Father. Because of the unity of these two ways, we cannot assign suffering to human nature only. We rather have to assign it to each nature in its own way. This means for the divine nature on the one hand that suffering is not a foreign fate for God, but as Maximus Confessor expressed it, it is based on God's decision in accordance with the law of his himself. One could say then that he experienced suffering in a divine way, quote from, from uh, Maximus. Since it was voluntary and he was not mere man, end of quote. And it means on the other hand that his suffering had divine quality because he suffers coming from the intimacy of the affiliation with the Father in the Spirit. The human suffering of Christ gains from their severity no other human being can experience. Therefore, quote, his suffering are wondrous for they have been renewed by the divine power of the one who suffered, end of quote. In this way, the Ordo Processionis, as the causa et ratio of all other efflux from God, is from the premium of the first book of the commentary of the sentence of Peter Lombard, as Aquinas said, is reflected in the very person of Christ himself in his two natures. This reflection even has a name, the New Testament calls it kenosis, but before we explore this any further, we have to look at the question of the union of the person of Christ from yet another angle. 
The unity of the person of Christ is according to Maximus Confessor, his tropos, his self-enactment as the eternal son who is able to act as a human being as well. Since it is the eternal son who acts in this way, it makes sense to understand with Aquinas the humanity of Christ as an instrument of the eternal son. But this is a very special instrument which enables the son to act freely as a man. It is an instrument which affects the son because he adapts intimately to this instrument by entering it from the inside. It's not a mere outer instrument like a hammer. This means that the, the unity of the divine and the human nature in the person of Christ has to be so intense that it must be understood as a structured unity of being which can only be achieved by the Creator. Something similar said uh, Jean Emery at the beginning of the conference, the infinity of Christ embraces his uh, human nature. Aquinas' teaching of the double being of Christ in the Uniona, Unione Verbi Incarnati, which caused some embarrassment among Thomists, see Summa Theologiae 3.17.2, where Aquinas insists on the one being of Christ, makes sense if one considers the relationship of these forms of being as the dependence of the act créé on the act incré, as Maurice Dolatayf formulated it, a dependence which safeguards the unity of the person of Christ. Christ subsists in two natures and embraces in, in himself the whole realm of the analogia entis, since Christ is the eternal Son in person, his human nature can be included in the subsistence of the eternal Son without losing its own characteristics. From there we can understand why the teaching of Maximus Confessor of the two wills of Christ does not split the person of Christ apart. It's not the will that wants, but the whole person subsisting in two natures. Christ possesses a divine and a human mode of wanting to energy, as the Greeks say, and he always uses both of them in one and the same act, as has already been shown. Maximus Confessor says, new theandric energy. What is now the concrete relationship between the divine and the human nature in the incarnation of the Son? The incarnation is described by Paul in his letter to the Philippians 2.6 as a kenosis. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon himself the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Gottfried Hofius rightly wrote that the first two lines of the hymn express the divine power and glory of the pre-existent and show by this from the beginning that the one who died on the cross belongs on the side of God and that in him God himself has entered into the depths of powerlessness and shame. How this kenosis determines the interplay of the natures in Christ is the theme of the so-called kenotic Christology, which tries to, take, tries to take seriously the reality of incarnation with all its implications. One of the major proponents of this theological movement was the Lutheran Gottfried Thomasius. I did, actually, I didn't expect uh, to tell you about him. When I, prepared this stuff, I thought maybe Balthasar or, or Barth, not Thomasius. Then I thought, well, maybe I should read this uh, work of Thomasius because everybody talks about it. And uh, I don't know, I haven't read it, so I, I finally read it and I was very surprised. I think we un underestimate the theologians of the 19th century. They didn't have TV, <laughs> but they read the Church Fathers. 
And uh, what, what you find in, in Thomasius is uh, really astonishing. You will see. And I mean, he's a Lutheran, I'm a Reformed, so, but uh, anyway. He's often cited, but I have the suspicion that he's seldom really read. Bart and Balthasar both mention him, but they don't discuss his remarkable insights sufficiently, which is a pity because they could help in both cases to clarify and support some neurologic, theological points in the works of these authors. The relevant work of Thomas's for Christology is his Christi Person und Werk, Darstellung der evangelisch-lutherischen Dogmatik vom Mittelpunkt der Christologie aus. The main insight Thomasius emphasizes is the necessity of a divine self-limitation in the Incarnation. The Incarnation is the appropriation and the penetration of the human nature by the second person of the Trinity. But the notion of the appropriation is not yet enough. Uh, we have heard so far about appropriation, but now comes a, uh, another step. One has to go one step further and speak of a self-limitation of the divine which doesn't mean or imply a change of nature. Otherwise, there remains a problematic dividing dualism between divine and human nature. Um, quote, the consciousness of the Son has of, him, has of himself and of his universal authority does not coincide with that of the historical Christ. It hovers, as it were, over him, Universal efficiency that he constantly exercises does not coincide with his God-human action in the state of humility without the self-limitation. It lies above and behind it. There is no duplicity of consciousness or of, of quote, end. There is no duplicity of consciousness or of actions which would destroy the unity of the subject. God really has to enter the conditions of our human existence in order to become a human being. But in this, he does not cease to be God. And self-limitation also does not imply that the divine nature changes in a bad limitation, as uh, Thomasius formulates it. So then, what exactly changes and how? If the Logos actually became Sarks, this already means the self-limitation of the eternal Son. Quote, so we see ourselves with the question about the occurrence of that kenosis as being referred to the starting point of the God-human life of Jesus. Scripture does not give us the right to distinguish between the two, and so we will be allowed to say from there that the assumption of human nature does not in itself fully express the concept of the Incarnation, but that it must at the same time be thought of as a kenosis of the divine, at the same time we say, not as if they were two acts, which one would at last be about to separate, but the acceptance of human nature in the determination in which the Son of God wanted it for the purpose of salvation and made it his own, that is to say, of the flesh took place by means of the kenosis of himself and could only come about in this way. For Thomasius, scripture urges us to see in this way, so basically what changed in the is the renunciation of glory and the acceptance of a limited form of life through the eternal Son. Those of you who have uh, read Balthasar probably came across the idea that uh, Christ deposits divine glory for the time of his earthly existence with the Father. And one may ask what exactly happened in this deposition. It sounds a little bit like leaving one's coat at the cloakroom in order to fetch it again after the performance. Here Thomasius, dealing with Hilarius from Poitiers, knows something more to say. The divine power of the Son did not just simply go away, but on the contrary, quote, not in a surrender or alienation of the essence of the deity, non abolitio nature, but in the fact that the Son of God, by means of an act of self-limitation, withdrew, took into himself his infinite fullness of power and glory, 
to such an extent that space was made for the servant form. This contraction of power takes place inside of the power of the sun. But this contraction is not simply based on a lonesome decision of the sun, but it originates in the Trinitarian resolution to save the world. Therefore, Hilarius as well as Thomasius use in this context the word obedience, which signals the reference of the kenosis to the mission of the Son, through which the Son is connected to the Father in the Spirit. The Son lets go the experience of divine glory not just simply into his own inwardness, but he gains the room for the kenosis by receiving himself from the Father. Quote, and is it not precisely the hypostatic peculiarity of the Son as the second person of the deity to want and know himself as conditioned by the thought, by the will of the Father, which he has and makes the content of his own self-determination? Uh, interesting, he is thinking quite deeply about the necessity of the inner trinity, for the kenosis, and he makes a connection between the, quote, limitation of the eternal son in opposition to the father. The difference between the first and the second person is uh, here understood as something like a limitation, but in a very positive sense. It's at the same time um, an expansion, you might say, of divine life. It is this Trinitarian self-limitation out of love which is the basis of all other genuine self-limitation. Quote, but these same moments of total passivity, even surrender to unconsciousness, are at the same time the high points of his activity, they are the highest affirmation of his obedience to God. The greatest deeds of his redeeming love thought wanted done by himself." End of quote. Thomasius sound here astonishingly modern, apparently because he has read the Fathers. Here it gets apparent in what way the person of Christ reflect, reflects the Trinitarian Ordo Processionis as causa et ratio of all other outflows from God. The kenosis is a variation of the sons receiving himself from the Father. Again, you see how important this idea is that the Son has the receiving in common with human beings. In the next step, it must be clarified in what way the self-limitation of the Son is not a bad limitation, which would alter or even destroy the divine nature. Thomasius speaks of characteristics of God which are absolutely essential to his nature, like absolute power, Truth, holiness, and love, these four. And he differentiates these characteristics from the so-called relative characteristics, we have heard of it uh, on the first day, uh, like almightiness, omniscience, and omnipresence. It is apparent that these characteristics are connected with each other. Of course, absolute power, which Thomasius defines as freedom of self-determination, has something to do with almightiness. The decisive relationship between these characteristics is that the relative characteristics can be taken back into the absolute characteristics. The imminent characteristics manifest themselves in the relative characteristics. The following therefore applies, quote, omnipotence is not a plus of absolute power, Omniscience is not an enrichment of imminent divine knowledge. Omnipresence is not an increase of divine life. If the Son as a human being has thus given up these qualities, he does not lack anything that is essential to God in order to be God. And he has given them up by virtue of free self-determination. So here he has not been omnipotent, not omnipresent, not omniscient because he didn't want to be. Of course, one can dis discuss it, but uh, it leads to an interesting point in the end. Important for 
Thomasus is that Christ knows also inside of the limitation of a human existence that he is the incarnate son. And this explains, Thomasus says, why in Christ wants, wants the one side, divine authority, and then the other side, human privation is predominant. But this is not a difference between a human and the divine consciousness. It's rather an expression of the range of the human divine person of Christ himself. The self-limitation of the Son is not the giving up of his essential power, but its enactment. Therefore, this power is still in the Son in a way that enables the Son to have the consciousness of being the Son. For Thomasius, the fact of absoluteness and self-limitation, which also is a characteristic trait of the eternal Son in his relationship to the Father, shows that the nature of God is not a dead substance, Quote, but through and through will life actus. It's a self-setting, wanting self, which totally has the power over itself. Total power in a prohibitive sense is a rigidly fixed substance that would be powerless because it could not determine itself. It would contradict the liveliness of the Trinitarian life. Now comes the next step. The divine self-limitation has only one limit, its own will as love, be it in the Trinitarian love or the love towards the creatures. As long as this limit of self-limitation is in effect, the kenosis does not contradict the power of God. Quote, even the entrance into the, into the creature's essential condition of time and space does not put him, meaning the eternal son, into a mode of existence that is absolutely alien to him, provided that both have a supernatural analog in the immanent Trinitarian relationships in the intellectual descendancy and coexistence of the three persons. This leads Thomasius to a last step in his understanding of divine power, which helps to understand in which way a human existence in all its weakness can be the genuine location of the exercise of absolute divine power and in which way two natures of Christ can be aligned in one singular tropos. In the end, Thomasius concentrates all the divine characteristics in the love of God. The essence of love is that it can give up everything except love itself. By the self-limitation of the kenosis, love achieves the restitution of the damaged Imago Dei. By practicing this love, the Son remains in the incarnation identical with himself because it is exactly his love which remains and is strong. Quote, what on the one hand appears to be an alienation or affinitization of the deity, is on the other hand the deepest internalization of itself, the concentration of its energy on one point, which, as will be shown later, far outweighs the most comprehensive manifestation of omnipresence. End quote. Not only does in the kenosis the mode of the Trinitarian relations change, as Balthasar noticed, but also the exercise of divine power changes its mode. It might seem as if the Son, as the helmsman of the divine providence, simply leaves his steering wheel in the kenosis, but in reality he switches to an action which changes the course of everything and even reaches the abuses of human freedom, which only Almightiness, Almightiness can reach, as Kierkegaard knew quite well. From the outside, it looks as if the Father and the Spirit had to sustain and to govern the world for some time on their own, without the Son. Quote, this alone is also an appearance that only adheres to, it, to the eternal view of these conditions. More deeply viewed, the world-redeeming activity is the center of the world-preserving and world-governing activity. End quote. And it is also not the case that the Trinitarian life of the imminent Trinity was disturbed or interrupted. Since the Son never quite never quit receiving his being from the Father, 
he also never quit spirating the spirit for generatio and spiratio belong inseparably together. Um, I think it's interesting how he reduces in the end everything to love, and he says the, the core of love is freedom. So uh, the aspect of love and of freedom goes through until the end, and I think this explains why the eternal son can remain himself as the eternal son in a human nature. Because love is that which actually is the most powerful reality in the world. And uh, love makes very vulnerable and at the same time very strong. And you can see that the, the cross is not thinkable without these two aspects which belong together. In the third <coughs> section I will spell this out. Uh, what, what does it actually mean for, for the cross, this uh, understanding of power? Thank you for your attention. Thank you for the presentation. You mentioned in the talk now Tomasi's own analytic theology was enriched by his reading of the Bibles. <coughs> but in other talks, it's been suggested, you know, I think with Professor Schwartz, that this is a new kind of a modern theme in theology and that the fathers didn't read Gnosis in that way. But there are hints that you suggest that could you just speak more about the way the fathers enriched his theology? Mm -hmm. Uh, I didn't read the, the footnotes, you know, in my presentation, but it's very interesting that he says, um, Hilarius from Poitiers, he said it all, what he wants to say. That's, that's, that's quite remarkable. Um, I mean, you will find it if you look through the footnotes. And Hilarius is his main reference point for this not so new thought, actually. Thank you very much. Um, that was a very rich um, exploration of the theme of self-limitation and self-determination. We quote Tomasius from the third edition of his work, which I think is the one where he already responded to the criticism of Isaac on the forums. So yep. it's the one where we have a more developed form yeah, right. um, of self-determination idea of contraction is from Hillary. And in so far they are pretty close together, I would, I would say. Yeah. And also, I, I mean, both use the term obedience, which uh, refers this contraction to the reception from the Father. Uh, Balthasar also wrote about Hillary and he said that Trinitarian dimension is lacking. I don't think so. I think through this notion of obedience, he actually has it in there. Yeah. So uh, I want to follow up on the question and, and push you a little bit on the unity. I have to read the whole paper, but 
the unity of the first part, where you were under the aegis of a mortuistic approach to the missions as expressive of processions, and the unity of the, the singularity of the divine nature communicated mm -hmm. from the Father to the Son and the Spirit. Yep. And then the second part, where you attribute self-determination, free self-determining love, as something characteristic of God in the nature of God, but also perhaps properly to the Son in some respects. Or, mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. I mean, you've written a lot about Aquinas on essay and received essay and creatures. Mm. So you're sensitive, I suspect, although I want to hear. I mean, what is the role of divine simplicity? Because clearly for Aquinas, one aspect of simplicity is that we are composite creatures because we receive being. But God is the giver, diffuser of being when mm. we come. And this is true, of course, also of the Son as the source of our being, even if the Son mm. receives his essay from the Father and there is an yep. analogy, okay? There's also a dissimilitude because the Son has the simplicity of the plenitude of right. our being. So how are you going to hold together the Thomistic side with the simplicity of the divine being present in the Son and the Spirit with the Thomasian idea of self-determination and self-redetermination, limitation, adaptation? Um, it's, it's clearly that uh, this self-determination is not um, separated from obedience, from obedience, you know? It's not, that's why I said it's not just a lonesome decision of the son to contract his power, but actually he receives himself from the father in being obedient. And um, I have a footnote in which I say that uh, the notion of subsistence you know, the notion of subsistence in a Thomist context, which not only means that uh, to exist, but it also means to act. And there's a very interesting uh, paper by Bernhard Welte, where he describes what the uh, subsistence in this double meaning uh, implies. And I use this term of subsistence for the um, notion of Maximus Confessor self-enactment. Can you see the unity there? Or yes, I, I, well, I think that's where you're going. I, if I understand you, you're also saying that in so far as the Son receives his subsistence as word and Son eternally from the Father and receives the will, the divine will of the mode of being as Son, possessing divine will, he also possesses capacity for self-determination in his own nature? Or yeah, by reception. By uh, complying with uh, his so, mission. Okay, so there's obedience in the Son, or there's something yeah. analogous to obedience. <coughs> but Thomas Joseph, I would like to um, um, point to page 16, I mean, where I say that I accept Bruce's critique of Bart with respect to obedience. I don't think. Uh, we should uh, stick with that as uh, reformed theologians because uh, it destroys the equality of the Trinitarian persons. I see it the same way. You can read it in a paper on... Yeah, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm yeah. just trying to understand the account. Yeah. Thank you for your time. And these might just be linguistic questions, so feel free to... On page six, you're talking about uh, just the, the unity of Christ. Uh, that last paragraph, in particular, uh, it says his self-enactment as the eternal Son, who is able to act as a human being. Yeah. So, he is a human. He is a human. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. Mm -hmm. And then. Um, a little further down, or five sentences down, because he adapts intimately to his instrument by entering it from the inside. So, you know, he is that it, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it refers to the, uh, what, what the choir said about the two natures and the one essay of Christ. Um, let me see. Footnote 54, 
Right, so, uh, you know, further up on that page, on page six, in the first full paragraph, where, what um, like um, in, in human nature, which have to do with the genuine reception of an essay by the creature. Mm -hmm. That kind of that same point mm -hmm. you're, you're making there. Yep. So, so you don't see a contradiction? There's not a contradiction? No, no, no. That's very important, yes. It's no contradiction. Yeah. Uh, but, but it's a, a single act, you know. It's not two acts, but it's a single act with two tropos and what the Maximus Confessor said. It's a new theandric. Uh, new theandric energy. Uh, at the end of uh, the first paragraph of the um, first section of page 7. You mentioned the, uh, the unity between the, uh, the Christ as a man, Christ as God. Mm -hmm. um, what is the position now that Christ is exalted in heaven? Where does that lead the new man in Christ? Uh, I don't quite understand what you want to, to, to ask. The Christ is exalted, does he go back to his original, uh, original form, as it were? Or does he, um, where does the humanity of uh, Christ... Oh, you mean in heaven? In heaven, yeah. Okay. Or it's transformed. So what's this in heaven? It's transformed, you know. I think it could be taken also to be a question about the supplementation of God becoming human, does that have an eternal effect even at the exaltation of Christ? Or well, like Bruce was uh, talking about, um, I mean the humanity of Christ remains, but uh, it's, it's a new form in which he exists. I mean you can see it on, in uh, the letter to the Philippians 2.6 following, that uh, with the resurrection, Everything changes. <laughs> That's the third section. You can read it there. Uh, does this answer your question? Uh, I mean, what what we see in the resurrected what we see in the resurrected is that uh, his wounds, you know, are not forgotten. They remain, but uh, it's still the resurrected Christ uh, who meets his disciples and is in, in a new form of existence. Can Christ appear without his form? Or without human? Or without being human, I don't think so. I mean, to us. And in, in the Gospel of John, uh, Christ says, you, will, you won't ask me any questions. <laughs> <laughs> And of course, this, uh, he means when you meet me. Okay, yep. All right. Thank you very much for the presentation. footnotes, but uh, Tomasius explicitly says the nature didn't change. Okay, so when God gives up, sorry, the son gives up. Um, he never gives up. Right, right, right. It's, it's a form of exercising uh, divine power. So God is not naturally God is not? Naturally. 
uh, he is able to, to do this by nature. But he doesn't lose his nature or... Um, that's the, also a theme which comes in the third section of the paper. Um, um, I mean, I spoke, I spoke of um, suffering, but we also have to speak about uh, um, the attitude of Christ, which remains throughout his whole mission. So it's, it's a paradox, if you want to say this. Um, and uh, I also think what... Gabriel Juk, who wrote this, this book about Paltus, said that uh, we have to talk about impassibility in the sense of God is, is able to defeat sin, death, and what else did he mention? Well, he's just able to prevail all the way through, and I agree with that. I think that's very essential. Exactly, exactly. I, you know, Christoph, I was expecting this, this question. So I actually prepared something for you. Commentary to the sentences of Peter Lombard, I found a section which I found extremely interesting, and I'm not sure if he says something like that anywhere else. I, it didn't cross my way, and I read quite a bit uh, of a coins. Ad tertium dicendum, quod potentia divina, nulla modo passiva est. Nec etiam vere activa, sed superactiva. Uh, and it goes on, you know, but it, it's quite clear that he says uh, God's, God's power is beyond the opposition of uh, passivity and activity. That's a tremendous statement. And would answer your question, I think. Yeah. yeah. I'd like to thank you all for your attendance here. I'd like to thank all our speakers and uh, all of you who came attentively and asked such great questions. Please help me thank uh, Mark Beaver and all of our speakers for this week.